0: Paul's first letter, his first epistle, and this evening we're in First Peter chapter one. We'll focus on verses 22 through 25. There's a lot in this passage to consider, so we'll extend uh, this uh, sermon uh, to the next Lord's Day as well. The title of my sermon tonight: "The Imperishable Word of God, Part One." So let us hear God's holy word. First Peter chapter one, beginning at verse 22, and reading through the end of the chapter. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. And let's uh, seek the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Let us pray. Our Lord and Father in heaven, once again, we come eager to hear and receive that which the Spirit is speaking to us in this, your God-breathed, inerrant, infallible word, Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that are good soil to receive the seed of your word, and we pray that your word, by the power and action of your spirit, would find a lodging place in our souls and bear spiritual fruit unto salvation and sanctification in our lives. Lord, once again, we ask that you would set a guard over my lips, that I might speak only that which is faithful to your word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus would be exalted and present in the proclamation of your word this evening. We pray these things, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Children, the three words you can listen for in my sermon this evening are the words Word, Bible, and Spirit. Word, Bible, and Spirit. Well, dear friends, we are witnessing in our world today a great undermining of the importance and the centrality of the Word of God. Where the Bible is not mocked or ridiculed or reviled, it is often ignored or dismissed as, quote, irrelevant. This undermining of the importance and the centrality of God's Word is, is not only taking place out there in the unbelieving world, where, of course, we would expect it to take place, but sadly it is even at times taking place within the walls of professedly Christian churches. And just to give you an example of what I'm thinking of, how often we hear even sincere Bible-believing Christians say things like, oh, let's just stop arguing about doctrine and let's just get down to the business of loving one another and of loving Jesus, of course." Or let's stop with our ivory tower debates over doctrine. After all, we've got a culture to win. Don't you know it's an election year, right? Or let's stop with all of this and let's just get together and serve. Let's be active in serving the poor and so forth. Again, in the course of my ministry, I've been in the ministry for a while and I've had the opportunity to meet, to meet uh, many fellow pastors, not just in the OPC, but uh, in other fellowships and denominations and, as well. And in the course of my ministry, I've even heard pastors, usually not OPC pastors, but I've often heard pastors make statements which basically imply that, look, the doctrinal differences between us are really no big deal at all. As long as we love the Lord, we're good. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood, brothers and sisters. I'm all for loving Jesus. I'm all for loving one another in Christ. I'm all for serving our neighbor, serving the poor and so forth. But before we can genuinely love the Lord as the Holy Scriptures require of us, we need to make sure we understand who the Lord is. We need to make sure that we understand what He has done for us and for our salvation. We also need to know what he expects of us. And of course, we can only gain such an understanding by studying the doctrines that God reveals to us in his holy word. In some, Sadly, in some contemporary American churches, more time is spent in the worship services, singing praise choruses and sharing testimonies than is spent in hearing the reading and the preaching of God's word by God's ordained servant. In fact, some churches today in their worship practices end up intentionally or unintentionally marginalizing or even replacing the ministry of the Word with things like drama ministries, musical concerts, and so-called sermons that are not really biblical sermons, but rather are more akin to inspirational TED Talks sprinkled with a few usually out-of-context Bible quotes. Is it any wonder, dear ones, that all kinds of Bizarre practices and strange doctrines are constantly popping up in the churches of pop American Christianity, in churches where God's Word is not given a central place in the life and ministry of the church. And I'm not suggesting that we in the OPC always get it right. We, we don't. Uh, we need to be reformed and ever reforming according to the Word of God. But friends, the point I'm making here is that churches which de-emphasize or marginalize the centrality of God's Word, our fertile soil for heresy and for all manner of unbiblical practices. Dear ones, in our passage for this Lord's Day evening, St. Peter the Apostle points us to the power and the centrality of God's Word, especially as that Word reveals the gospel, the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For the word of the gospel is an imperishable Word. So, let's dive into our text for this evening and consider some of the truths we can learn from this passage. And as we focus, first of all, in verse, on verses 22 and 23, consider, friends, the centrality of God's Word and Spirit to the life of the church, the centrality of God's Word and Spirit to the life of the church. And as you will see, I'm mentioning the Word of God and the Spirit of God together because Those two realities go together. The Spirit has chosen to bind Himself to the Word and to use the Word as His instrument in imparting and in nurturing new life in Christ. In our passage for this evening, we find the Apostle Peter, after urging his readers to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, we find him reminding them that they are genuinely able to love one another. Why? Why? Because they have that power in and of themselves? No, but because they have been born again by the Holy Spirit. Let's again look at verse 22. It says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, let me pause here uh, in this first part of verse 22. If you read this out of context, it might sound like that these uh, believers had purified themselves by their own works righteousness or their own efforts. But the language, I believe the language that Peter is using here is the language describing uh, the response of faith to the gospel call. We do obey the gospel in the sense that we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. When he talks about their obedience to the truth in the context here, it would seem that he is speaking of their response of faith and repentance uh, in reply to the call of the gospel. And for in the gospel, God calls all people everywhere to repent and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. In that sense, they have purified their souls. Not that they have, but by grace through faith, God has purified them as they have obeyed the gospel. And they have done so, of course, because they've been born again by the Spirit. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for what? For a sincere, brotherly Love. We'll talk about that more in a few moments. But they have we have been saved, we have obeyed the truth by the grace of God for something, namely for sincere brotherly love. Therefore, the exhortation is love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This is a a pure love, not an impure or unclean or sensual love or what have you. We are to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Verse 23, since you have been born again, born again by the Spirit, raised to newness of life in union with Christ. And by the way, this passage implies that those who have not been born again by the Holy Spirit cannot truly love with this kind of sincere brotherly love of which Peter speaks. In the Greek, the word is Philadelphian, the love, uh, you know, you hear about the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Well, that's the Greek, this is the Greek word used in, in this passage, Philadelphian. They cannot, those who are unregenerate and unconverted cannot love with this kind of sincere brotherly love since they remain, as we all do apart from grace, spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins and thus since they are radically corrupt and totally depraved. That's, that's our, all of our... Uh, condition apart from the intervention of divine sovereign grace. We are not only uh, spiritually drowning, we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and the Lord has to raise us to newness of life in Christ, and we are radically corrupted by sin. Sin has impacted every, uh, every aspect of our being. Dear ones, before God gave you the gift of the new birth, you too were incapable of truly loving In a Christ like manner. While the unbeliever can certainly love in the natural sense of showing natural affection and loyalty towards family, friends, and acquaintances, and that's a good kind of love that even unbelievers are capable of, they cannot truly love in the kind of selfless, God focused, Christ like brotherly way that Peter is here speaking of. This is a supernaturally produced kind of love that peter is speaking of in our passage only jesus christ by the power of the holy spirit can change a sinner's heart so that he or she can begin genuinely loving god and genuinely loving other people with this kind of christ-like love you can't work it up in yourself without the grace of the spirit the Holy Spirit gives us this capacity to truly love God and others in the gift of the new birth, and such love is the outflow and the fruit of our union with Jesus Christ and of the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. Now, what does this have to do with the Word of God? Well, friends, the importance and centrality of God's Word comes to the forefront Uh, in this passage, because it is through the means, through the means of the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit ordinarily works this miracle of the new birth in the heart of a sinner. As it says, you have been born again, verse 23, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. What, what does he mean by the living and abiding word of God? He defines it a couple verses later in verse 25. And this word is what? The good news that was preached to you. Beloved, the Bible indicates that in ordinary circumstances, God uses means or instruments, ordinary means or instruments, to touch sinners' lives with His saving and sanctifying uh, grace and presence. And this is one of the things, and this was pointed out by Reverend Stevenson this morning uh, when he preached at, uh, at his grandson's uh, baptism today. One of the things that makes our God so extraordinary, so amazing is that He chooses to use ordinary, even weak things to convey His superabundant and extraordinary grace. God uses means not only to bring us to faith, but to nurture us in that faith. God uses means such as words, water, bread, and wine, very ordinary things used according to his appointment and according to Christ's ordination and institution. He uses these things not only to bring us to faith in Christ, but to nurture and strengthen us in that faith. What an amazing God we serve. He doesn't need to use the razzle-dazzle bells and whistles uh, Steven Spielberg type of fancy, uh, fancy stuff to, to get us to grow in grace. He uses ordinary things like a, a sinful fallen man standing behind a pulpit, you know, uh, just jabbering on with the Word of God. He uses words. He uses the waters of baptism. He uses the bread and the fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper. To bring us to faith, he uses the word to bring us to faith, and he uses the word and the sacraments to nurture and strengthen and and settle us and root us and ground us in that faith. And the most important, indeed, the primary means of grace that God uses is his word. For it is through the word of God that the Holy Spirit ordinarily creates and strengthens the gift of saving faith in the hearts of God's elect. Now, this leads me to the next main point I'd like to make. Again, focusing on verse 23, we learn here in this verse that the word is a means of grace. Let's consider the word as a means of grace. The word as a means of grace. Again, to read verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. In verse 23, Peter tells us that it is through the means of the word of God that the Holy Spirit brought the gift of the new birth to his readers. The Apostle Paul uh, says a similar kind of thing in Romans chapter 10. The, the Apostle Paul also speaks of the word as a means of grace in Romans 10, verses 14 through 17. And I'd invite you to turn there, Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. And there, uh, Paul has just gotten done speaking of uh, faith in Jesus Christ as the means of salvation and that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, as it says in verse 13. And then he goes on to say this in verse 14, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? He's talking there about calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. This prayer of faith, if you will, calling upon Jesus for salvation. How are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And then verse 15 is interesting. How are they to preach unless they are sent? The implication is unless they are sent by the church. Paul has in mind especially ordained gospel ministers uh, called and set apart and sent out by the church to preach. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then verse 17 is so important. So faith comes from what? Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? That's the gospel, the good news of salvation through the obedient life, the atoning sacrificial death, and the glorious resurrection of Christ who intercedes for us at the Father's right hand and who invites and welcomes all sinners who by grace recognize their sin to come unto Him in faith and repentance. Again, Paul says that saving faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. Now, in the context of of that passage that I just read, Paul particularly has in mind the word of the gospel as it is preached. He's not denying that some of God's elect come to faith simply by reading the Bible. That does occasionally happen, but more often than not, people come to faith in Christ as they hear the gospel competently and clearly and faithfully proclaimed. So the emphasis is here on the preached word. And if you turn back to our passage for tonight, to 1 Peter 1.25 in our passage, it's clear that Peter too has in mind the preached word of the gospel. As I read to you a few minutes ago, as Peter says, and this word, he tells us what word he's talking about, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Does that mean that we just need to hear preaching and we don't need the Bible? not at all. You see, since the preached word is based upon and rooted in the written, the inscripturated word, what Paul and Peter say about the preached word can also be said about the written word of God. After all, what is the chief and central subject of God's written word? What is the center, the hub, the main focus of God's written word? Well, nothing less then the gospel, the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the good news of His cross and His resurrection, the good news through which we believers are saved. And what is the faithful preaching of the gospel but an exposition and a proclamation of the truths that are found in the written word, especially as those truths point to and center upon our Lord Jesus Christ and His saving work for us sinners. I'm reminded of what our larger uh, catechism helpfully states in its Bible-based answer to question 155. The question is, how is the Word made effectual to salvation? The Bible-based answer to that question is this. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Dear listener, has the Spirit made the reading and preaching of God's word effectual? for your salvation have you heard the good news of jesus the christ the son of god incarnate who was crucified to pay the penalty for sin and raised from the dead to save sinners so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life have you believed the good news and have you embraced the savior by faith and faith alone jesus invites you jesus calls you jesus commands you this evening repent and believe in Him, and you shall be saved. In closing, beloved, let's consider some implications of the centrality of God's Word to the life of the church. And I know there are many things that could be said about what I've been preaching on this evening, many applications, if you will, or takeaways that that we could uh, glean from this passage. But let me just make a few points as we close our time in the Word tonight. Friends, we at Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we must keep God's Word central in the life of the church. That must be our goal. We don't do it perfectly. No one, no church does it perfectly. But as we strive to be a Bible centered, Christ centered, cross centered church, let us seek to keep the Word central. And why is that so important? Because it is a means of grace. And why is it so important to remember this truth, that the Word is a means of grace? Well, one of the reasons for this is because there are so many incorrect and, and false and misleading ideas out there, even among Christians and in the Christian world, about the Word of God and about the idea of the means of grace. There are sadly many Christians and numerous Christian denominations and Christian parachurch organizations which lack a biblical understanding of the means of grace. And instead, they teach that God's greatest work of grace takes place directly, mystically, without the use of means such as the Word and the sacraments. And so folks in, in traditions like that are always seeking the next big thing, the next big excitement, because the Bible, and I've even heard some of some charismatically oriented. Uh, Christians say things like this, that, the, you know, we, we, we want more than just a dead letter. We want the living voice of the Spirit. But this is no dead letter. This is the living, abiding Word of God, because it reveals and points us to Jesus, the living Word incarnate in whom we have full and free salvation. Many of our Pentecostal and charismatically oriented friends believe that God speaks directly to them with fresh divine revelation apart from the Word. But friends, the idea that Jesus Christ directly reveals himself to men today in this post-apostolic era apart from the written and preached Word is deeply unbiblical. And it leads to all kinds of strange doctrines and bizarre practices. Again, as we Uh, had read in Romans 10.14, Paul says, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? Not how are they to hear and how are they to believe and be built up in their faith unless you get some faith healer to come to town and and do his razzle-dazzle and get a bunch of people healed and all of that. No, how are they to hear without someone preaching, preaching the gospel? It seems clear that in the inspired Apostle Paul's thinking A non-Christian cannot and will not come to faith in the Savior apart from that person being exposed to the Word of God. Friends, in this new covenant, post-apostolic age of completed revelation, God has chosen to use means, simple, ordinary means, to create, to strengthen, and to sustain saving faith within the hearts of His elect and these means are first and foremost the word. Secondarily, the sacraments, which are visible or words. They are the word, they're the gospel in symbol form. And there's also a sense, of course, in which we could speak of prayer, as our confessional standards do, as a means of grace. Though it, prayer is our communication to God in response to his revelation, whereas Uh, God's Word and sacraments are God speaking to us. He speaks to us in His Word, and He confirms His Word of promise in the sacraments. But nevertheless, uh, the prayer, too, is a means of grace. The Reformed theologian Michael Horton, I believe, is correct when he writes the following. He writes, Apart from the Word, there is no salvation and no activity of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. Where the Word is rightly preached, the Spirit is active in power. Where the Word is not rightly preached, the Spirit is not active in power. It is impossible to have a place in which the Word is preached clearly as the proclamation of Christ, where the Spirit is absent in His power and saving strength. It is equally impossible for the Spirit to be actively present if the preaching of Christ is not the central focus. This is why we at Grace Church strive, however imperfectly, we strive to keep the proclamation of Christ front and center. Dear ones, too many today, too many Christians today, have been taught misleadingly to think that the Holy Spirit is specially active in power and specially present only in churches and gatherings and revival services where there's lots of yelling and shouting and pew jumping and rolling in the aisles and hand raising, you know, wash the window, hand raising, and generally lots of whooping it up for Jesus, sort of the soul train for Jesus uh, methodology. And again, I'm not against, and we shouldn't be against emotion, emotional expressions in worship if everything's done decently and in good order. I do hope that Not only your mind, but also your emotions are engaged in your worship of God. However, if such churches do not feature the reading and faithful preaching of God's word, then the saving presence of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are absent, absolutely absent, no matter how excited the worship leaders and the people seem to be about Jesus. You know, ancient and modern pagans sometimes get similarly excited. Ancient and modern pagan religions are full of similar kinds of emotivism, emotional hype, but no clear-thinking Christian would argue that such emotive expressions are signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The idea that, oh, the Lord, I've got a special pipeline to God, I've got special insights into God's Word and God's ways... This leads to arrogance and spiritual elitism, as if, uh, well, no one else understands this but I do. I've got a special pipeline to God. And folks in that kind of tradition often despise or look down upon those of us who are Reformed and confessionally Presbyterian because our services are so simple, they're just focused on the reading and preaching of the Word and the sacraments, and, and our services are so, quote, boring. But beloved, as reformed and confessionally Presbyterian, uh, as a reformed and Presbyterian church, let us never be tempted to feel inferior as a church simply because we do not have a lot of whooping it up, razzle dazzle, or a lot of liver shiver emotivism in our worship services. Let us indeed worship from the heart, with our hearts and with uh, e- emotional depth as well as intellectual depth. But in all of in all of this. Let us continue to strive to keep the word, especially the word of the gospel, front and center. This is what we are called to. Let us, by the grace of God, be faithful to our call. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, sovereign and eternal God, we thank you that you do extraordinary things through ordinary means. And we praise you and thank you that you choose to use very ordinary, even weak and sinful individuals such as we are, to display your grace and glory. When we are weak, then we are strong, for we are strong in you. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, you would help us to treasure your word, to treasure Jesus, the living word, and to proclaim it and confess it to others as we have opportunity We ask all of these things, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen.